Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. When I started to dig into it, there was not much work going into the real-time tracking and forecasting of clouds from satellite. The business person in me could see that data opportunity because you had this industry in solar that was languishing in terms of the current data practices, but also set to really explode and take off. And for me, that was a really interesting problem in terms of what the technology could do, but also in terms of what the industry really needed. And and that's where I love to work, right between the technology and where the industry is going. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. I just want to welcome you in, especially to all of you who are new, perhaps have never listened to Suncast before. I'm so honored. I want to say thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention by lending us the one non-renewable resource you possess. That, of course, is your time. You won't regret investing in today's episode because I promise you're going to learn a lot. I do want to start, however, with an apology. Normally, as you can hear on this beautiful, sultry microphone that I'm speaking into right now, my audio is crisp, clean, and clear. It has been for almost 650 episodes now, but occasionally it's not. Occasionally I fail, and uh, sometimes it happens in a consequential way. Today's episode is so good that I want to make sure when you do hear what I believe personally is a slightly diminished audio quality from my microphone, you'll hear our guests' mics sound fine, that you don't hold it against me. Try any of our back catalog and you'll see we do hold in high regard and value audio quality so that you can focus on the content, not the container. Speaking of content, today's entrepreneur is a meteorologist turned solar warrior. We had his co-founder, Nick Engerer, on the show way back in the summer of 2020. That was episode 273, which we'll link to in the show notes if you'd like to check that out. That episode, if you go back to listen, is the founding version, at least through Nick's eyes, of Soulcast. And of course, that's his story, and history has a way of evolving the narrative. So today, we have some fantastic ground to cover with the CEO of Soulcast, James Luffman. The company that he and Nick co-founded has, in many ways, revolutionized the way we think about weather data and access to that data and the day-to-day decision-making for solar project developers and increasingly just renewable energy asset owners around the world. Solcast makes it more predictable to estimate precisely how your renewable energy assets will perform minute to minute. Today, we're going to learn exactly how. We also welcome Dana Olson, the global segment leader for DNV, the company which recently acquired Soulcast. In this first ever conversation between the two companies, we dispel myths and we get insights into what makes Soulcast such an interesting acquisition target for a firm like DNV, who, let's face it, certainly has the resources to build rather than buy. We get into 
Dana's thought process and his team's evaluation that compelled them to integrate the Soulcast product into DND's broader offering and why that matters to you in the field developing solar projects day to day. Hey, if you haven't already, I really would like to ask for you to subscribe to Suncast. I hope that as a result of listening to today's episode, if you're new here, you will do just that so that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Thoughtful, deep insights from entrepreneurs on the front lines of the clean energy transition. Today's leaders, building tomorrow's companies, impacting our legacy and our children's heritage. Many more stories like the one you'll hear today are waiting for you in the back catalog at mysuncast.com. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, if you're a longtime follower of Suncast, you know that I have mostly focused on the United States. And what I desire to do more often is get perspective from markets that I have called here and did an interview recently with Andy McCarthy, called Australia a postcard from the future. In many ways, Europe is as well. So I want to bring perspectives from around the world to inform how we are going to get to grid parity, how we're going to get to a dollar a watt installs in the United States. What is it that's limiting our ability to do so? And what are the potential risk factors that we've got to mitigate as we scale the energy sector with renewal as the baseload power to power our clean energy transition. James Luffman is the CEO of Soulcast, a DNV company. We're going to talk about what Soulcast is and why they're now a DNV company. But before we do all that, James, welcome. I'm so glad to finally have you here on Suncast. Yeah, thanks, Nico. It's a pleasure. Amazing. Uh, I love the name Soulcast, I have to say. I almost used that for the podcast. I think I may have said that to Nick as well back in the day. <laughs> we were focused on Latin America specifically, and you know, it was one of those obvious the sort of naming yeah. conventions for the sun being soul. And uh, we decided to stick with English, Suncast instead. So I'm glad that you were able to utilize the URL I didn't buy. Yeah, it's funny. You you, you would have had fun if, you, if you'd tried because we, um, on the URL, we, we actually ran into a, um, one of those domain name trolls and, mm. um, and, and spent, spent 18 months in a bit of a shadow boxing negotiation with the guy. I don't know who, who he really was or where he was, but, um, but it, it took quite a while to negotiate him down from the extortionate price that he oh was asking. <laughs> That's classic. Well, at least you yeah. didn't choose Suncast and have to spend the last 18 months in a cease and desist order for one of the largest corporations with a mighty large uh, legal team, as I have. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, there's always trade-offs in choosing names. Choose your names wisely, entrepreneurs. Choose your yeah. names. That's why you see crazy names like um, Watch with two Ts and, uh, and mm. Taskmaster with two As. It's crazy. James... Uh, before we uh, before we get too deep in here, I always like like to start out with one of my favorite quotes, and this one's actually one that I have uh, actually I hold dear. It's a it's a it's a easy one to remember. It's like on the level of Seneca. In fact, it's by Horace, uh, another uh, uh, super old school philosopher, and it is quite simply: "Rule your mind, or it will rule you." And that for me is something that is a daily reminder. I literally have it as a, it's a it's a imprint on the keyboard of my computer and it reminds me that we get to decide how to spend our days james do you have a quote that similarly is inspiring for you and that you share around to your team are you, are you a quote uh, collector like i am i'm not huge on on quotes themselves as as, as um as, as inspiration but i but i am pretty big on ideas and 
Actually, speak of Seneca, that there's this there's, there's an author called Nicholas Taleb. A lot of people would have heard, heard him. He wrote a he wrote a famous book, The Black Swan, and a bunch of others. And he, he's a sort of mathematician, trader, philosopher. He's got this really great idea called um, the the unread books in the library. So um, the idea is that the the unread books are more valuable than the books you've read. You know the arrogance that can come with knowledge, and and you realize that actually what we don't know is much greater than than what we know. And um, I just I just find it really relevant, and um, particularly these days where we move away from religion and towards science, and that's all great. But also it it, it tends to have this bad side effect sometimes of making us think that we know everything, but um, but actually we don't know very much at all. And that's that's kind of humbling, but it's also cool because it means that. Um, we can capture new knowledge and do new things because there's there's way more in front of us than than behind. Sobering facts right there. There's way more in front than behind and there's so much more that we don't know. I often say when I, you know, reach out to a mentor, I'll say, Hey, look, you've forgotten more than I'll know on this topic. If you wouldn't mind like sharing some of what's left with me, that'd be great. Uh, <laughs> so you are uh, in particular a, a treasure trove of wisdom for those of us who were not meteorologists who haven't thought particularly deeply about the impact of weather on our solar arrays. M- many have, but let's face it, a lot of folks don't understand the ins and outs of what it is that you uh, you work on day to day. I introed you earlier as a meteorologist turned solar warrior, and I'd love for you to give the rest of us a better understanding of how would you describe the problem that you've created Solcast to solve. So around 2012, I was I was working as a um, meteorologist and and also an executive in the weather industry, and I'd, I'd been working around meteorology, operational forecasting, modeling, and and product building in that industry, and I'd always had a big interest in solar energy, and probably from around the year 2000, uh, in my in my late teens, I'd kind of seen seen a solar future, um, and I was really interested in how I could be a part of that. When I started to dig into it, the early days of the solar industry, um, there was not much work going into the real-time tracking and forecasting of clouds from, from satellite. The business person in me could, could see that data opportunity because you had this industry in solar that was languishing in terms of the current data practices, but also set to really explode and take off. And for me, that was a really interesting problem in terms of what the technology could do, but also in terms of what the industry really needed. And, and that's where I love to work, right between the, the technology and where the industry is going. And so I came from the weather industry where we'd been doing these things for years and I knew I could apply those, those learnings, you know, for, for solar, which um, just got me really excited from a, from a business point of view. And every entrepreneur listening can certainly appreciate your ability as a subject matter expert, to apply knowledge from that mature industry to a nascent industry, an area where you saw that there was a huge parabolic uh, growth curve opportunity. Uh, and, uh, you know, speaking from hindsight, you, uh, you made some good choices. So why don't we take a moment then and have you introduce us to Soulcast and why it's going to help solve this problem that you've just enunciated. Solcast is pretty much the the weather data service for the for the solar and power industry. So it's it's packaging up all those clouds, all those aerosols, the irradiance, the PV power, the albedo, all the things you need to know for solar projects or for products or applications. 
And it's putting all that data behind an API where people can sign up, access the data, test the data, reach out to our team for more access. That's the whole idea. That it's, it's the data platform for the, the solar industry to build on. The weathered data service from the solar, for the solar industry. On the surface, that is a really broad uh, idea. And it's, a, and it's a concept that you touch on a couple of different areas, right? So those OGs uh, like me who first got in the solar industry have used uh, all kinds of data sets, um, you know, looking at different ways to measure the yield, the performance of an asset that doesn't, as you so uh, eloquently um, suggested earlier, uh, take into consideration real-time data. It's looking at red books. It's looking at like historical data about what we ought to expect is going to happen. And what I hear you saying is that Soulcast introduced forecasting the way that we tune into the news every morning and see what the weather is supposed to be like today, Soulcast does, but for solar development or solar farms. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we, um, we actually started the other way around. So the, the industry got started with this historical data for planning and designing and financing assets. And look, don't get me wrong, we, we do that now, but um, where we actually started was in the very real time, tracking those clouds from satellite and then tracking them forward through time for the next few hours and the next few days, you know. So in, in 2015, the, um, the Japanese had just launched this, um, this satellite called Himawari 8, and it was really important to meteorologists because it was the first of these third-generation geostationary weather satellites. So these are the satellites you see on the TV pictures on the, on the news. This satellite was a, a real step change in, in capability, and now we've got them covering the whole world, these third-generation satellites. But it was, it was a massive step up. The pictures went from once an hour or maybe once every half hour to every five or ten minutes, you know, and, and went from maybe five kilometres right down to 500-metre resolution and went from uh, just three or four of these spectral bands to these you know, 16 or 17 um, spectral bands. So what that meant in terms of tracking clouds was, was huge because if, if you picture a cloud where it is now and you wait maybe half an hour, an hour, you won't even know if it was the same cloud. You don't, you don't know where it is, where, where it's gone. Um, you just have a really broad sense. And, and so that, I saw that and it really excited me because I could instantly see that this is the information that the solar industry would need in terms of a weather data service. And I'd even, I'd even looked at how could we get this going within the weather enterprise and the industry I was working in. And it was just a little bit too adjacent and a little bit too difficult to, to get that going. And, and Soulcast was really the formation of my ideas around, well, how do, you, how do you spin that up as a service and spin that up as a company? I'm really looking forward to hearing your side of the story as well, like the compliment to the conversation we had with Nick, because we talked a lot in Nick's conversation specifically about the research he had done and being able to take that IP out of the university setting. What were some of the existing options that you stepped in to, uh, I'll say, compete against or improve upon? Like, right? If I, absent Soulcast, what was I? What was my? What was my uh, available data set or option up to then? We, we kind of slotted Soulcast into the middle because it, at that point in time, you could you could get your hands on the historic data. You know what you you talked about before, and it it was not in real time. Maybe it was of some fixed period in the past for planning your asset, and then on the forecasting side, it was all based around these these weather models that update couple of times a day, maybe four times a day. And they give you a 
general idea of what might happen tomorrow. When we started Soulcast 2016, there was basically nobody tracking the clouds in real time and high fidelity and then forecasting for the next few hours what those clouds would do and um, certainly not on a global scale and certainly not with an API. And when we launched the API beta in around, I think, February 2017 it was, it was the first um, such thing in existence and it just started to grow from there. What's the magic of the API? I I know that in many conversations I've had with you uh, and even... I'm sure uh, later on we'll probably ask this question similarly to Dana, but like, how does the, the API factor into all this? The API is right at the center of what Soulcast is and why it's been successful. The mantra behind it is kind of like build once, sell many. At the time, around 2016, the, the people who were operating some data in the space were generally setting up data feeds on a per-customer basis. And so what that means is that the oxygen and the staff time is it's going towards selling and setting up and tweaking specific services at specific places for specific customers. As Soulcars, we don't do any of that. We, we build this general machine that makes data and that is the API and the a- API is how you get the data. You know, the, the way our CTO puts it is that that our, our data science guys make the pizzas and our tech guys deliver the pizzas. The API delivers the pizzas. And so it, it means that we don't have to go and do it bespoke for each, each customer. We, we make the data, come and get it, you know? That's brilliant. Okay, I can understand that. And any of my colleagues that have been working in Latin America on utility scale solar, and I imagine it was done the same in the United States. I wasn't involved personally in developing United States solar. I can speak to like Panama and um, other places where we were doing you know, uh, huge projects and and bidding them into merchant markets. And we were buying data sets on a per country, in some cases per county basis. Yeah, right? yeah. And it was one of those things where it was like a menu and it was confusing as heck. And I was just like, why is this so hard to buy? I had to know, do I want three meter, one meter? What I think the other option was 10 meter uh, or like one kilometer data or three meter data, maybe those are the two options. And then it was like, am I going to buy the data set for all of Central America or just Panama or just this one little county in Panama where the project is? And I thought to myself at the time, like, man, what a cash machine these guys have. This business model is clunky. Like they're selling this thing so bespoke and it took like a week to get any information or a quote. Mm. So I can yeah. I can definitely understand from a business model, which we'll dig into in a minute what that API allows you to sort of disrupt. That is fascinating. Okay, so I believe that as an entrepreneur, timing is everything, right? What needed to be true for this business to really work? You mentioned the Himari 8 data or satellites. What else? Talk to me about the underlying uh, milestones in the industry that that needed to be true for Soulcast to succeed. That's, that's a really good question. You know, the... It was a leap of faith in some senses because we we had this general idea that solar was going to grow exponentially, which was just based off the fundamentals. We didn't have any proof it was going to happen. Uh, you could see maybe the beginnings of some exponential growth there. We um we were early to a market and we were early with an idea with the API. You know, we we launched it and people started signing up. They started using it. They started finding us, and that was cool. But at the same time, we, we were bootstrappers. We didn't, we didn't have venture capital or anything like that. And 
we um we flirted with that but moved away from it and we so so we had to go and win business as well and so i i had a background doing enterprise sales in the in the weather space and so as well as building the api and having that that more saas product led growth engine there and starting to invest in that which at, at the time nick was really focused on that i was also hitting the email hitting the phones hitting the airplane and um winning that initial business for the company that would allow us to to keep bootstrapping, you know, keep keep growing without um, without having too much pressure from investors because we knew that could be a death knell for Soulcast given we were so early to the problem, you know. So we had to um, we had to make sure we had time for the industry to kind of catch up with our thinking. Yeah, people don't appreciate this actually that the only real merchant markets in the world at that time were parts of Latin America like Chile and Panama and a few other places uh, for solar. That is. Um, I think Australia, perhaps. I mean, you could probably name them, right? Where real-time forecasting mattered. Where like people yeah. could wrap their heads around it. They're like, okay, I know how to monetize this now. This isn't something yeah. I need to think about, like future-proofing my business. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the, the real-time and the, the, the short-term forecast, it, it really interested us on a science level. And also we could see that once more storage came into the grid, it was going to become crucial because then you, you're controlling batteries on minutes to hours kind of timeframes as well. And we even put that in the name of the entity we formed. We, we called it Solar and Storage Modeling, PTYLTD, here in Australia. And, um, and so we, we were early with this problem, but for those people who could see it, and it surprised us how many people could see it, it got them really excited, you know? And then we went back and added those other things, like we extended the forecast horizon out to 14 days for, for the likes of energy traders or price forecasters. And we, um, we went back and ran all of that satellite history going back decades. We went and ran our brand new algorithms over that, that older history. You mentioned that you bootstrapped the company. Can you talk a bit about what it took to get Soulcast off the ground and to get those first couple of clients? Not, not necessarily like the sales process, but like funding. How, I mean, I, I, you know, I dug in deep with Nick on spinning the IP out of the universities, but Taking, taking, this is a SaaS approach. Talk to, can yep. you talk about those early milestones that for you were like, wow, this, it looks like it's going to work. Yeah. In terms of cash flow, it was early wins with customers, which really came because we were able to spin up a service quickly from a prototype that I'd built and also through enterprise sales work that I was doing. But then secondly, was Nick's side of the coin was working the government grants. So there was a fairly good, government grant landscape in Australia at the time. And we were really capital efficient and what we were doing was really exciting. So it made it a really good match because for, for a fraction of the size of the, the, the kind of grants that they were giving, they could get all this potential impact and we could show them what we were doing with the projects because we were just executing so fast. And so I was there knocking down doors, winning those deals and, and Nick was there lining up those those grant projects and and that's how we got the cash flow to be scaling it up in the early days without getting big institutional capital. Did you imagine starting the business who an ideal acquisition partner would look like someday? Yeah, I think we we'd always had a we'd always had a favoring for a a trade kind of investor like some someone who was actually working in the business rather than some kind of financial entity but 
equally, we, we didn't have a particular plan for an exit like a lot of startups do or an IPO. Or We'd often get that question, you know, what's your exit strategy or what's your, what's, you know, you're planning to IPO or, or whatever. And um, we, we really enjoy doing what we're doing. And I, I still do really enjoy doing what I'm doing and, and will do for some time, right? So, um, so it's, it's not so much that we, we were defining an exit strategy from day one. We had in the back of our head, look, there's some options. And if it is, it'll it'll be a trade option where it's 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 some people in the industry who know it, who get it, and that's where you see the value. Yeah, strategic investor. I thought it'd be interesting to bring in the voice of someone on the other side of the table who did become a strategic and more than a strategic in James and the Soulcast team's lives. My name is Dana Olson. I'm the global solar segment leader here at DNV. Uh, I've been at DMV now for about five years, uh, and a little bit of context. DMV is uh, a private foundation founded in 1864. We've been delivering assurance services uh, for the last almost 160 years, and uh, we continue to do that you know, across uh, renewables. And it's, it's something that our, our Global culture right now is is really focused around protecting uh, property, uh, life, and the environment. For those who aren't familiar with Dana, he also spent many years serving our Department of Energy through the National Renewable Energy Laboratories and was most recently, prior to DNV, the technology manager for the DOE's CETO, or Solar Energy Technologies Office, and has quite a bit of depth and breadth on all the ways that solar is evolving. Dana, it's awesome to have a chance to chat with you, and I'm grateful for uh, all the coordination that helped to bring this together. Thank you for joining us on Suncast. My pleasure, Nico. Um, yeah, what what's really kind of struck me about, about the conversation earlier, actually, is just the timing. Um, so prior to, to joining DNV, I was actually in the, the CEDO office uh, at DOE, and we were talking a lot about these sorts of things. I have a colleague that was uh, putting together a funding opportunity to, to really evolve the forecasting uh, industry. And the timing with regards to what, uh, you know, where Soulcast came from and, and what questions James was asking is almost uncanny. It's, it's really just fun to hear that, that he saw what my colleagues were seeing as a, as a major challenge as well. Put me in the room the first time you started to recognize there's this company out of Australia that's shaking things up in the way that we're measuring data and f- forecasting for solar. I've been familiar with Soulcast for some time, but that was generally from the context uh, that that uh, we discussed earlier about historical time series data. Uh, how do we develop projects, uh, doing pre-construction, energy assessments, and, and getting context of around expectations for how a project unbuilt yet will perform in the future. We had some conversations early on, and then if I'm honest, I, I was quite engaged in, in some conversations around this uh, the forecast arbiter. It was a, a colleague of ours that previously helped develop that, and uh, I knew from some of that work that, that Soulcast really was, was quite differentiated in that space. Um, performing very well. Um, again, a very scalable product and uh, philosophy behind um, the company. 
And so based on a lot of this, um, James had reached out and was, was looking for partners to, to grow uh, Soulcast going forward. What impressed you about Soulcast? From my perspective, uh, Soulcast came uh, to a solution from a very different perspective than most of the solar industry uh, before this. I think it's, it's something that most of us in the industry, when we arrive, uh, we jump in, start working on projects and realize uh, these tools are a little old and clunky. You know, certainly coming from CEDO and, and NREL my, myself, I realized that most of the industry operated on um, Excel uh, spreadsheets, trying to, to run models, evaluates a lot of um, the inputs that go into some of those desktop modeling tools that are out there. We assume that everything is, is the same, but there's really just a bunch of Excel black boxes in front and behind uh, a lot of the tools that are out there. So one of the, the challenges that, that we were trying to really address is how do we bring consistent data in a scalable fashion across the life cycle of a project, right? So that's from early feasibility, project development, financing and design um, and operation. And that's where I think Soulcast is a, is a really interesting solution. And I'm sure we'll get into a bit of how the solution works, particularly for folks like from a business model perspective. But I remember one of the earlier conversations you and I had, you said the, the interesting thing about Soulcast compared with perhaps the DNV model as a, as a global engineering firm is no longer billing hours, but delivering value via quality and quantity of insights. Can you unpack that a little bit more for me? Yeah, we've been on this journey for a while, um, as, as I think most people know, right? Uh, an independent engineer uh, is an engineering consultant. Uh, so we have to go out and uh, deliver our insights uh, based on everything that, that our colleagues know, everything that our, our colleagues have worked on with customers. Uh, to solve in the past and, and apply that to future scenarios. Uh, a lot of that does come back to uh, how many hours will this take? What's the scope? And uh, what's your hourly rate to get that, that work done? We've been in this transition now for, for a few years and making very, very rapid progress uh, in terms of how we are redefining our workflows internally uh, in order to serve customers in a way that is delivering solutions when they need them, as opposed to waiting until they have to call. And I, I think a big thing here as well is Soulcast uh, delivers that data when you need it at scales that you didn't even consider previously. Soulcast for me is one of the first real examples of like a Google acquiring a Foursquare, right? And there's a lot of difference and a lot of mutual benefit, but uh, so that folks can really truly understand uh, the scope and scale of DNV. You mentioned that it's been around for uh, over a century and that it's a private foundation. The recent announcement in revenue suggests that DNV has about 2.3 billion a year in revenue, like massive company. How does DNV think about uh, both innovation, R&D, and M&A? Yeah, good question, Nico. We're constantly evaluating our, our innovation activities internally. So we're investing 5% of our revenues each year in, into research and innovation. 
Some of that is um, digitalization that we're doing every day in our workflows across all of our businesses. Um, a lot of this as well is understanding where we have limitations uh, in terms of the culture and the technology internally and identifying where we can partner or acquire uh, teams to help us solve those problems differently. And so certainly we see, you know, the, the M&A opportunity as a, as a huge lever effectively to, to innovate faster, uh, to bring in that culture that we need to change in order to address, you know, the energy transition. And I do want to go back to, you know, the scale uh, topic that, that James brought up earlier, which is... Uh, each year, DMV publishes something called the Energy Transition Outlook, the ETO, and we'll have another, uh, or we actually, we just had another release uh, in September. And in these, uh, these forecasts, we're effectively looking at an economic model for a future scenario based on costs and prices and, and markets and production, et cetera. And... What I think is, is really interesting when you step back from that is that every project right, that is being developed today will be operating in 2050. And on top of that, we're only at 5% or less of that total installed solar capacity. So by 2050, I think the solar industry or solar capacity, installed capacity is about to increase by 20x. And, and to some extent, that is really, that is the real question that Soulcast and, and James are highlighting. How do you operate a plant, let alone a grid, right, in that future scenario? And there are markets where that is very relevant today. And certainly, South Australia is a very relevant space where there's a lot of solar and you have to be able to operate that market sustainably. California, Cal ISO is, is, is every day showing there's a huge amount of solar that comes offline every afternoon. And in this ETO scenario, the entire globe will be at a higher generation percentage of solar on the grid than California is today. And I think that, that can't be stressed enough, right? The, the future scenario is very different from where we exist today. And that's where we need data to help us make decisions, to help us operate plants, to help us design plants, and to do that consistently uh, from design to operation. Dana, that all makes sense to me. And I'm, I really appreciate you giving some sense of scope of how you think about strategic operations, partnerships, and even uh, acquisitions. Um, clearly, for me, outlines the, the perspective, the thought process that underlies why Soulcast would be a target uh, opportunity. One of the things that stands out to me, though, is that you commit 5% of revenue to innovation technology. I take that to be you know, to R&D each and every year. And just back of the envelope math, that's about $115 million in R&D. That's a whopping amount um, that, that, goes into, that goes into R&D, specifically, as you said, to scale along with your customers, your digitalization processes, and to move faster for your customers. A theme throughout our, our company, um, whether or not you're on the maritime space or in energy systems like, like we are, really the, the culture 
in DMV um, is is rather unique in that okay, it is owned by a private foundation in Norway. We do really kind of take that to heart in terms of we're we're stewards of the company, uh, of course, but we're we're stewards of of the industries that uh, we support and and you know to a greater extent uh, the planet on which we reside. And a big part of that just kind of comes back to we don't own assets, uh, we don't operate assets. What we do is provide uh, context uh, around what to expect on a, on the performance of an asset, rather risks uh, associated with that asset, and then especially as you go forward, how you um, how that asset is performing. And that asset can be a ship. Right, uh, somewhere on the Pacific Ocean, going through the Panama Canal, or it could be a solar asset, a storage asset, wind, uh, etc. And these are the sorts of things where you need different tools to solve those problems. And um, to some extent, you can't use the same generic data to solve those problems, right? So in the solar space, really what we're trying to do is deliver insights uh, that can enable customers to make better decisions, to make decisions that have less friction when they come to talk to us later, um, so that financing goes faster, development goes faster. You pick the projects that will work the best, the sites that will be best suited sooner in the process, right? You know, one one thing before I transition back over to a couple of questions I have for James around this, but I noticed that DNV also donates half the profits to charitable causes. Do the employees have any say in how that money gets redistributed? Yes, we have uh, donation matches. So um, we do have a say, right? When employees uh, who are we're constantly running charitable campaigns uh, internally as well, when employees make a donation, uh, it is matched by, by the DNV company as well. Hey, if you're looking for a way to maximize the ROI for your next utility project, I would like to point you to SunGrow's new SG4400 modular inverter. This new innovative solution will reduce capital and operating expenses because it arrives already on a skid with a step-up transformer. It's built using four 1100KW modules so that if one of them fails, well, the other three keep powering right on through as the DC and AC protection are completely separate between the modules. You can learn more about this fantastic new product and more at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. In a world where lots of solar technology providers seem to blend together and have little differentiation, it truly is necessary that you are able to dig deeper, get more resources and tools and have more breadth of opportunity to learn and share with your core partners. Trina Solar is leaning in to the many requests for the Trina Hub, the new global partner portal dedicated to giving partner training courses and certifications, as well as a full asset library of pre-built and co-branded marketing resources for channel support. I'd like to encourage you to try Trina Hub for yourself see how it helps grow your solar business and develop or enhance your digital marketing ecosystem. Learn more and sign up today at mysuncast.com forward slash Trina. James, I'd love to get into 
your mindset uh, a bit about the um, the process of this, you know, selling your baby. Help me understand from your perspective as the entrepreneur, the scale and scope of this me- the, this sort of mega corporation or mega organization uh, called DNV. We ended up in a in a process um, where we received some some offers for the company that was, was triggered by receiving uh, an an un uh, you know and not a requested unsolicited. offer unsolicited yeah. offer. Thank you. And that, as a result of that, we went into this process and and spoke to some different companies and um, and obviously DNV was was one on the list that that, that I gave um, to our advisor and said, look, I'd like you to speak to to these guys, and that's how we ended up speaking with Dana. Of the final offers we we received, Soulcast um, DNV was was not the the greatest financially, but um, the the purpose behind DNV and the um, the longevity and the um, the ethos and the, the mix of the the profit and purpose it was really appealing to us as was the expertise of the people within energy systems at DNV because they're reputed around the world as true trusted experts on solar so when you put all that together um, we were not just me but our whole team was was really excited about the particular prospect with with DNV James if I may I want to back out a bit and um, get into a bit more of, of your backstory. You were born and raised in Australia. Uh, you come from a large family, a small family. I'm wondering more specifically, like, kind of put me in the place of you in your tweens and teens, uh, kind of deciding on what the trajectory your life was heading, um, large nuclear family, et cetera. So, you know, my, my, my dad was a farmer. My mother was a, a pharmacist and daughter of a professor. So I sort of had the practical side and and practical business side, and and also the really nerdy side. You know, I was the youngest of four kids, and so I was I was like the nerdy the nerdy kid of the family. And um, one of the main things I like to nerd out on as a as a kid, even you know as as a child, is, was the weather. And and I, I guess that also comes from the farming side where you're obsessed with the weather. I got into sailing at a really young age. I was little sailboats around Sydney Harbour. And um, I, I know Dana's, Dana's kids do the same on San Diego Harbour and my kids are starting to now actually. But so I was, I was sailing and when you sail, you're obsessed with the wind and then the, wind, the wind's driven by the weather and so then you get interested in the weather. And so all through high school, I picked up any book on meteorology I could find and read it basically. And so by the time I came around to it and, and dropped out of my engineering degree after three weeks <laughs> – and um, and then came around and 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 re- redid it. I, I went straight for meteorology, and my friends all said, "Yeah, I could have told you that the whole time, man. You're you're a total weather nerd. It, that suits you just just fine." Yeah, I I'm going to tap into the vast number of us who are both sailors or or kiters and ask a couple of like yeah. uh, specific questions as a meteorologist and sailors um, and, and uh, kiteboarder um, or sorry, meteorologist and Windsurfer, what apps are on your phone? Well, this is a free plug for the for the the windy guys. I think I think they're in Czech yep. Republic. Windy, um, windy so blows for windy over wind guru. I you know um, I have to do wedding forecasts, party forecasts. You know these things happen when you're a meteorologist, and people want want you to make a forecast, and they expect you to know even if you haven't been on shift and you haven't got all your tools loaded up like you would be when you're, you're doing your job professionally. And um, 
in the early smartphone days, it was actually really hard because you'd be scrounging around for the resources and model model data, like data from different weather models. And so Windy, um, Windy delivers all of that for, for me. I, I was um, doing the, the windsurfing race board world championships in Germany in June on a, on a lake and um, sitting there with my Windy and, um, and it's, it's great. And I, I know you like to go kiting on a, on a lake too, Nico, but um, sounds like Wind Guru, it might be worth looking at as well. But for me, um, Windy blows my, blows my mind how far they've come in the past five years or yeah. so. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, I mean, I always indicating community, it's either usually Windy or Wind Guru. Uh, it's one or the other. What else? Yeah. What about, um, what about weather forecasting? So I, I mentioned weatherology, um, and I use dark sky. Uh, yeah. I mean, dark sky blew my mind. It was when dark sky for me was the equivalent of, of like Google maps or, or yeah. ways for some people. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. um, so what about, what about for meteorology specifically? Look, I wouldn't have a specific recommendation there. I'm probably a really bad person to ask because I do it myself from first principles and it's all <laughs> like windy. I just want the primary I just want the primary data, right? So I want I want the the satellite, the radar, the observations, the all the different weather models. Don't tell me your interpretation of it. Uh just just give That's me the amazing. data and then I'll I'll, I'll work it out from there. Thanks very much. Cuz I don't know what they're doing to it, so it's really hard for me to interpret that, you know. Oh my God. I did not expect that answer. You're <laughs> such a nerd. <laughs> True to Thanks. form. That was, Thanks. you truly did nerd out on him. You were professional. <laughs> you were professional. So let's, let's dig into that. You left, uh, as, as many of us have dropped out of engineering school to pursue your real passion. You know, your career path that I often ask what's the career path you thought you'd go down, but didn't. You actually pr- pursued. And then entrepreneurship, it turns out, and solar yeah. was the destination vis a vis. Uh, meteorology. P- unpack a little bit your journey through becoming a professional meteorologist. You know, it's a really corny story, actually. I, around the time after I dropped out of engineering, a friend gave me the uh, the the fable. You know, it's like a pop fable called The Alchemist. You know, and it's, it's oh yeah, it's, of course. It ends in something like find your personal legend or something like that. And um, immediately, as soon as I read that, I I knew what I had to do. You know, and so I just went went. Um, Went into meteorology, did a degree. I um I did a an honors year um where you're you're basically working under a professor doing research, and um, I was really fortunate to to um, work under two professors who were doing a lot of groundbreaking research in in climate change. Um, Matthew England and a- Andrew Pittman here in in Sydney, and so these are at the time and and still two of the world's top climate scientists and. So I was I was sitting there working in their laboratory, taking these climate models and and doing things with them, doing experiments on supercomputers, and then interpreting the output and writing um, you know writing articles and things. So doing science basically, and um, and that was that was a really cool introduction. And at the same time, I was doing my professional training as a forecaster, and so I kind of had the the two sides going on: the science side, but also the practical side. It didn't take me long, though, to realize that, that operational forecasting is shift work. It's basically like mowing the lawn, and I hate mowing the lawn. You, you, you go in every day and you do your duty schedule, you know, 11.53, check satellite images, tick, you know, uh, 11.54, you know, check warnings or, you know, whatever it is. And um, a lot of guys and girls doing that Sounds job really like it. And yeah. <laughs> It is, but some people really like it because if if you don't want a job that follows you home, it's perfect, right? Because you walk out and that's it. 
Um, oh yeah. But for, for me, well, except uh, for the occasional yeah. wedding forecasting. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> At least you're not getting an email from your boss saying, "What about this? What about that?" Or you know. And um, so for, for me, um, the, the shift work was was a bit soul destroying, just because there was no creation involved. And so I was really fortunate that the company I was working at at the time, they were, they were just interested in, in like a, a project to try and make their own forecast data because until then they'd been using data from the, the public um, weather service only, more in a media capacity, but they wanted to move more into an industry capacity where they would differentiate on making their own forecasts. And so, and at the same time, the professors I'd done my, um, my honours year with had um, – pushed me and, and got me a scholarship to go and do a PhD. And so I was sitting there with the PhD letter and I thought, you know what, if I, if I go and build this forecast system, it'll be the equivalent of a PhD. It'll be faster. I'll get paid and it'll, it'll have greater impact on, on people's lives, you know? And so I, I did that. So I, I threw the PhD letter in, letter in the bin and I, um, I went and built this, this thing that, um, that would forecast the weather. My wife calls it the robot. And when she she met me around that time and was like, okay, I met this guy who's who's building a weather robot. This is this is really interesting. That's fascinating. Was that um, the the New Zealand Met Service? Yeah, no. So at this time I was at a company called called the Weather Company, which is now called Weather Zone. Yeah, here in Australia. Yeah. 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 Okay. So walk me through building that model and how that evolved your career going to new, new to NZ Met Service and eventually sort of starting to tease out these traits of entrepreneur. Yeah, building that model changed my life for sure because I was there building this thing and then testing it, seeing how good it was. And then um, we had it and it was a small company, but growing fast, you know, it was, was really in that fast growth stage. And so my boss at the time said, well, why don't we go and try to sell it? And uh, I said, okay, well, Let's do it. So, um, so I got I got into sales, and also we had to turn it into a product. So I got into product management and just started geeking out on these topics, getting myself some training. And so then from there, I ended up moving into the sales team, and then I became um, the 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 director of sales at this this company. As we were growing, selling selling this model I'd built and and some other products around it, and so that that got me more into the commercial side. And my my dad had always said to me as a kid, he said. If you get a chance to do sales for a year or two, you should because it's how you learn the commercial side of, of the business. You know, it's the pointy end. It's, it's where the business is written. And so I did that. And that's, that's what took me to the New Zealand Met Service. They, um, you know, I was in a small company and the opportunities to keep moving were, were becoming limited. And so um, it was a much larger company and, and they were looking for a, um, a GM for their, um, their kind of commercial operation in, in the home market New Zealand, but also Australia. And so... That's when I took the plunge and went went from the the small, fast growing private enterprise into the um, the government owned um, enterprise and a national weather service. Yeah. When did it become clear to you that you probably still weren't cut out for this whole like corporate thing, and you needed to try to figure out what it looked like to build a business on your own? Yeah. Look, I think the first few years of doing the corporate thing. Um, you know, you kind of fake it, fake it till you make it. And, and being like a scientist in a business environment and succeeding, you, you almost feel like uh, guilty, almost like a fraud, you know, and that, I think that was part of the reason why I went and did an MBA, right? I thought I need to go and work out what, um, what, what the real business is. And then you do an MBA and you realize business is just making it up anyway, and they're, they're all making it up. So, so don't, don't worry about that, you know? 
getting things done corporately, you know, and, and winning the resources you need and convincing the people you need to, it, it came easily to me. Um, but equally, after a while, it, it wears you down in terms of that product and customer focus that I've always had because you spend so much of your time doing these other activities essential to get the resources and have the alignment that you need internally. That combined with with the idea behind Soulcast and realizing this is not going to happen from an entrepreneur perspective. It's going to have to be an entrepreneur. It's going to have to be its own business. And my wife, Kimberly, who's, who's amazing and has just had a huge impact on on me, she, she was in the end gave me the push and said, you need to just go and go and do it. You've been tink- tinkering on your laptop long enough and um, I think you should just go and do it. I'm, I was, yeah, you're right. I should, yeah. That's amazing. So what became this business called Soulcast started as a model on your, uh, your lowly uh, sort of grad school laptop. Your wife kicked you out of the nest and said, you got to go do this thing. As I mentioned before, we did have the pleasure of in- interviewing Nick uh, before I knew really much about Soulcast. Um, he was introduced through a mutual friend, if I'm not mistaken. And so I have his story of being like the uni science nerd partner, right? That helped like build a, a, a piece of this business. But I didn't have your perspective. Talk to me about finding Nick. Why were you doing this sort of round robin looking around at different research agencies? And, and how did you find Nick and ultimately land at the business? Yeah, that's right. So I'm, I'm building the prototype on my laptop with the new Japanese third generation satellite tracking the clouds and building that up. And I'm building the business plan. I'm doing some, um, some planning around the name of the company and some brand stuff. So I'm doing all that, all that MBA kind of stuff as well. All that MBA and, stuff, the making it up stuff. Yeah, the making it up stuff, exactly. And, and um, at the same time, I, I just had a belief that with startups that, that two is better than one. I also knew that the area we were in was quite R&D intensive. And so I, I thought a research or university partnership could be a good idea. So I just went around and, um, and met the various groups who were doing stuff in Australia at the time. And the last one I came to was actually Nick in, in Canberra in um, late January 2016. And we, we sat down around a, a table in the cafeteria <laughs> And sketched out the idea that became Soulcast together, yeah. And what was unique about Nick and what they were doing there that caught your captured your attention? It was like chalk and cheese with with Nick. This is a purely Australian phrase. What did you just say? Chalk and cheese, like completely different, you know? And and so I get it. In terms of university and research groups, where I was starting to feel was, oh gosh, maybe this hunch is wrong, you know, because maybe maybe this is not how to do the innovation. Meeting Nick was like a breath of fresh air because he instantly got what I was talking about. He understood the concepts. He'd also just lined up a, um, a three-year project with the university as an applied like industry research project that required a commercialization pathway, which Soulcast. So, so for the project, so he, he, secured a, th- a three-year uh, funding project inside the university to have himself and some postdocs and some students doing industry-applied R&D around, it was specifically around the modeling of rooftop solar around Australia at the time. And, and so one of the things that he had promised was a commercialization pathway. 
And he'd also promised an operational service that he could provide to the low voltage networks in Australia. I said, well, great, because I've already built something operational and the business represented the the commercialization. And so it was a win-win because I was looking for a partner and Nick's project needed this operationalization and commercialization outcomes. And it was supposed to happen in year three. And we said, we, we basically rewrote the plan and said, look, we'll, we'll do this from the start. And I was, I was really pushing on that because you can't just do an R&D project at a university and hope to spin up something operational at the end of it. It just doesn't work that way. You kind of, unless you're thinking that way from the beginning, it, it's just not going to happen, you know? So I want to dig in a little bit to the business. What assumptions early on did you have to challenge in that first year or two of getting this business off the ground? You're talking like industry assumptions there, Nico? Yeah, like the way that things were being done, the assumptions about how things should be versus how things are going to be working with Soulcast. I would say a big part of that was actually on the business model side. So we consciously adopted like a product-led growth model from day one. And that really was how we thought we could deliver on the whole idea of Soulcast, which was to enable. We had the word enable in our kind of mission statement, and we still do, is sort of enabling the people building the the solar future, the energy transition. And um, to enable them, we had to make it so they could just come and get it, come and test it, come and see it, come and read about it, which is almost the opposite of the enterprise sales stuff that I'd been doing up until then, which was all about go to them, you know, explain to them, prepare it for them. We really had to challenge that assumption and and so on the one hand, we had to win those grants. We had to close those big deals early on. But equally, we had to be building and nurturing this, um, this product-led growth model, which meant bigger investments in our website, in search engine optimization and marketing, in a front end for the users to interact with the API and download data via CSV and all these tools to give you scalability. Payment platforms, you know, we had to integrate credit card payment platforms at that time. And so we, we're doing all these activities around this assumption of, of we need a, a product-led growth go-to-market model. For those who probably understand, they think they understand at least the business, can you ex- enunciate the actual, the business model? How do you make money if it's not obvious? And um, what is the product that people purchase when yeah. they make that exchange? Yeah, so it's it's a SaaS it's a SaaS business model. So it's it's a recurring subscription business model where we we constantly update data and people access and monthly more data or annually for for more locations. Yeah, it's a mix of monthly or quarterly or or annual, but it's it's virtually all subscription business that's um that's that's sort of steady and recurring, but then will grow over time as as your needs grow. You know, you might start with five sites and go up to a thousand as you as you grow your application or your user base. What's one interesting use case or application that you've been able to put the data to use for that uh, is just uh, like maybe it's novel, but you look at it as like a, an example of how you are, how the level the granularity of data you provide is, is both useful and uh, interesting. Yeah, I would say definitely tracker control is one of the coolest and I'm biased, right? I, I, I'm obsessed with tracking and now casting clouds in real time, right? So anyone who can capture value from the first half an hour of the forecast, which is like crazy accurate, is really exciting, right? And and there's some battery and smoothing applications of that, but tracker control is really cool. So obviously, 
a lot of your listeners will be familiar with with the idea of, of smart tracking, where instead of just tracking where you expect the sun to be, you're, you're you're changing based on a diffuse light condition. In other words, if it's overcast, point those trackers straight up into the sky. So there there are some some applications of our our API by some of our customers who are using the the short term forecast data to. Firstly, supervise those pyranometers because you can't always trust the data you're getting or they, they might not be delivering data at a particular time. But secondly, to, to know whether you're going to be, you know, jumping at shadows too much. If, if it's just a small cloud, don't, don't bother. Or actually, yeah, the, the whole, the whole sky is becoming overcast here. So go for it, you know. So it's, it's one of those ways that you can eke another, another half a percent, um, out of the um, out of the gains you, you get from this smart tracking, you know, I appreciate that direct application, um, and I uh, I could probably do an entire episode with you on just like really digging into different use cases. I think that'd be fun. Uh, but one of the fun things I mentioned, speaking of fun, that I saw you guys do in a particularly unfun uh, environment that we all experienced here, at least on the east coast of the United States, the Canada fires for this summer cast an unexpected, very specific shadow <laughs> across the east coast. Um, in ways that really our, our brethren out in California, Dana and, and the folks in California who've had to deal with fires the last few years have become familiar with. You guys did a really interesting project. There was an article or a series with PB Magazine where they actually leveraged your data to look at the impact of, uh, of the fires in Canada on PB production. Can you talk a bit about how that came about? Yeah, sure. So. Early on, we focused really hard on tracking the clouds, and and clouds are the biggest driver of the variability in in solar that you get. But um, actually, aerosols uh, are number one in a, a number of different places, and everywhere else, they're they're generally number two, just behind the clouds. But when you get a when you get a fire event or a a volcanic ash event, or um or or even just just some really bad pollution that's hanging around, the aerosols, so the the particulates in the atmosphere. They, they become really, really important for working out the irradiance and the, the PV power. So we've had to adapt and get our hands on the best aerosols data. And the, the Alberta fire situation was one of those things that once you start working with this aerosols data and you start learning about it, you start working out how to improve it, how to track it against aerosol measurements, you see these events and you're like, wow, like it, it might be sulfate pollution from shipping or it might be a, a wildfire event, but there's a heck of a lot going on in the world. You know, China, China's cleaning up uh, its act on, on aerosols big time. And so all these changes are happening and they result in, in huge uh, differences in, in the PV uh, generation you can get. So I'm going to link to a post that you made where PV Mag did an article about the impacts of the Alberta fires for folks that I mean, this was one of the one of the things that caught my attention, and I was like, you know what? I really need to uh, get on the phone with Soulcast and better understand how this is used. I remember when we were developing projects, you had to take into consideration for P ninety P ninety nine things like a once in a hundred year volcanic eruption, mm. right? Depending on where the project might be, and it seems to me like what your product and the ability for access to this kind of granularity of data provides is actually better bankability, better financing models for projects because we don't have to take into consideration these like wild, hairy guesses about what might happen when we can build into the model risk analysis based on the real-time data and actually we can we have better granular data. Do you have, how, would, how do you think about that? 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it, it goes back to the clouds and aerosols again. You know, you, the uncertainty in a resource assessment is is really primarily it's a function of the uncertainty in the cloud estimates, which go down to the satellite to cloud um, algorithms that that we run in house. And and are, are you in a place where they where they might be better or worse? And we can we can quantify that. You know, and it's the same with these aerosols. That um, what's what's your what's your risk of greater aerosols? What of the aerosol? measurements been what what changes are going on so rather than just a general idea of well it's plus or minus five percent anywhere it's it's really um quite a bit more specific to where you are and what's around you in terms of those those cloud and aerosol changes yeah you know dana i can certainly see how uh an organization that is quick and nimble as you're suggesting like the culture both at at dnb and the culture at soulcast are beneficial, mutually beneficial. And, you know, with DMV taking a position in annual publications like the Energy Transition Outlook and being considered the authority, the reputable counterparty to your developers and your financing party partners, you come across a product like uh, Soulcast, which is API first and extremely efficient in terms of fast and to deliver data. And it seems just a way to extend the brand promise. So I want to ask a slightly varied question on uh, on the why Soulcast for you and it is how now as a as a combined entity does DNV and Soulcast really stretch the industry to do something that they didn't even know was possible? We come at this from a, a couple different perspectives. One is how do we in our own workflows consume data differently but instead of this kind of stage gate where we pay you know uh, every time we pull data the question really kind of comes back to how do we enable insights based on a scale of data that otherwise would have been a barrier? You know, we're consuming data, obviously, internally for the work that we do every day, uh, but we're doing that on top of the data that we're already consuming in our day-to-day jobs, right? So it's another insight. But what it brings to the, the table, really, is that it can be consistent from pre-construction to operation. And so we can be working with customers and and other software platforms, uh, very early stage feasibility work uh, that obviously can extend to those engineering teams eventually. And finally, to the financing table, we'll have an energy model that would be, you know, we might select a resource from a, a different vendor. But in the end, we can run that model on various different uh, resources and be able then to, in that operational phase downstream, uh, provide context and consistency to the developer, to the investor, and to the asset manager to know how should this have performed as opposed to a bunch of uh, you know course corrections from this model to that model and understanding kind of what the model changes were as opposed to just what the insight that's needed is in order to operate that plant or develop the next one. James, the innovation that you've uh, provided to the industry, I can see as something that's readily acceptable and understood for developers. One of the challenges that we have is there are often, there are more than, more than one party at the table. In this case, utilities are the buyers of the electrons in most cases of these large utility scale projects. And, and they're also interested in knowing how they're going to perform. I would, I would imagine that utilities are a rather large customer base for you. And the results were recently revealed 
from a process that one such utility here in the United States ran, Southern Company. Can you tell me a bit about that process and what it means for the evolution of utilities and how they're thinking about integrating this data? The thing with our forecasting is that we never really know how we're doing. Uh, we, we track against measurements all the time. We track against our previous algorithms. We can see that improvement. But how we're doing is, is a function of you, the user, and, and what you care about and your particular sites and what it means for you and also what else is available to you, right? So, um, so we, we occasionally get these rare opportunities to participate in these, these sort of open um, trials or uh, Nick used to call them bake-offs. <laughs> so in the States, there's this really, really cool piece of technology called Solar Forecast Arbiter. And um, I think Dana may have mentioned it earlier and, and Dana was involved with, with some of its early, early evolution um, through, through his work with, um, with the Department of Energy and, and NREL. And, and so Solar Forecast Arbiter um, is, is a tool for evaluating solar forecasts and evaluating forecasts or conducting these trials it's, um, or bake-offs. It's, it's really, really hard to do. And so at Solcast, we've had to work really hard on publishing all of our own accuracy data and giving that data to the users to help them so that they don't have to do this. But when they do have to do it, a tool like Solar Forecast Arbiter is a really cool way to do it because it, it takes the data, the forecast, it lines it all up for you. It lines it up with the measurements. It handles that whole dimension of time and update frequency. There's a lot of dimensionality with these trials. And um, a solar forecast arbiter, which is now under the um, Electric Power Research Institute or EPRI in the States, they partnered up with um, with the utility in, in the South um, Southern Company. And they have, have run this um, competitive forecast trial with with nine different forecast vendors including solcast we we'd wanted to get involved with solar forecast arbiter for a number of years but we we just didn't have the time we were so focused on commercial stuff but our um our team had grown to a size where we felt we could justify it this time and so we got involved for the first time with solar forecast arbiter and this this trial with southern company and it's fascinating because every day we get to see the results and then we're in the lead and we're like, oh, wow, this is great. And um, we'd often won trials before, but um, the amount of data we had was, was huge and winning an hour ahead and day ahead, you know, and, and these, these um, other vendors who we don't really see as competitors because they don't have the same business model that, that we do, that they may be a little bit more boutique than what we do and, and we're the big data shop, but um. It's really nice to see, really good validation to see um, winning, winning this trial and really great to help our users have that confidence to know, okay, if you need forecast data, you can have a little bit even more confidence that, um, that it's, it's, it's as good as you can get. You know, um, We're still improving it, but um, in the market, it's as good as you can get. And I think that that just helps with the adoption of forecasts because forecasts are required for the energy transition. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about storage or or trading or you're talking about coordinating things you know technologies like demand response it all requires a bit of time you know uh, a, a little bit of foresight and the cool thing about the forecasting is in those first few hours it it gets quite accurate because we're tracking each individual cloud from from satellite and and that's why we're, we're stoked in in this case that they did look at one and two hours ahead and that was actually where our advantage was the biggest and so that that goes right back to 2016 and geeking out on the satellites. And that's been our biggest focus. Yeah. How exactly would a utility like Southern Company integrate the results of this trial? 
Yeah, all around the world, we've we've got these grid operator um, customers, and they've got a really hard job in the energy transition that that Dana Dana talked about. Dana talked about that energy transition outlook before, and um, getting to really high renewables penetration, keeping the lights on becomes extremely hard. You know, these these guys are, and girls are in a really hard. Um, Really hard world, and it's 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 hard to know with this variable generation coming into your your power system what's what's going to happen next and what the fluctuations will be. You know, and um, in the states with with day ahead markets, a lot of the forecasting tech initially really focused on that that day ahead piece, but as as the solar penetration grows, the intraday situation becomes really important because. You need to have things like reserve generation ready. You need to be maintaining um, the frequency on on the system as well. Even though plant owners and operators are often required in different grids around the world to to submit their own forecasts or to uh, fund any any shortfalls in 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 energy delivery, the the system operator still needs to have its own view. That's the best practice in the industry is for system operators to run their own forecast system and take data, um, take SCADA data from those those PV and and wind um, generators on their network, but also um, run technology. and And the best practice is to take the the primary data for those forecasts from a service, you know, something like Solcast, and then they add their own insights and knowledge about how things fit together on their end. And so to them, accuracy is fundamentally important. And in, in the States, what we're seeing on that side is the system operators who started procuring day-ahead um, forecasting tech, you know, 10 years ago or so, they're, they're now really looking hard at the, the intraday. And it's, it's not just Southern Company, it's, it's others as well. And, and improving the accuracy, predicting those cloud ramps at one hour ahead, two hours ahead, three hours ahead, even sometimes four hours ahead. So that's that's really where where things are at, and it kind of comes back to this point too, right? Of uh, those operators have a lot of assets, and the question is, how do you compare those um, equivalently as well? Especially when you're starting to to look across borders, those can be interconnection borders, uh, but we also have, you know, DMV has global customers, um, and how do they make a decision about a regional provider here? How do they adapt that to their models? And that's where I think Solcast and DNV really deliver a lot of transparency and consistency, um, not only obviously in the models, but also in the implementation. And the trust is, is there. We're validating globally. We don't validate just in one region. Dana, I really appreciate that extra color as well. It's super important to think about how it really does help think cross-border and cross-region and differentiate between different types of technologies. You know, this industry is rife with terminology. Once we start talking about utilities, we start getting into acronyms, we start getting into a lot of, even you're using the word intraday, right? That's a, that's a term that may be hard to understand for folks. James, what are the things around specific terms that you might help teach us about, two, one or two, that you continually have to teach others around the lexicon related to your product so that they can better understand and contextualize what it does? Yeah. One of the simplest ones we have we have challenges with is it comes from our name Soulcast. They assume that we're a forecasting company, and it it, it surprises them to find out that um, that's not even quite the majority of of our business. Um, a lot of it comes from having those satellite actuals, and and that's the other we've had to invent this term called estimated actuals because when we call it actuals, because it's based on an actual measurement of of, of 
the optical thickness of clouds, which is then directly related to the global irradiance hitting the surface. They think we're bullshitting, you know, they, they, don't, they don't think we're telling the truth um, about calling these actuals and um, my measurements are the actuals. And then sometimes you look at the measurements and if they're well calibrated and maintained and clean, that, that it's a pretty good truth, but, but sometimes they're not. And so then it's, what's the actual actual if, if you've got the estimated actual, you know? Now, is, there, is there anything else like that, estimated actuals or intraday that you feel is one of those if that you feel is one of those core concepts or words that is used that people outside of your immediate circle they kind of look square eyed at you. Yeah, another one's now casting. So so now casting is this this idea of like tracking the clouds in real time. We're always striving to find clearer and simpler ways, and and sometimes it does unfortunately require new terminology. But if it actually makes it easier to communicate these ideas, we'll we'll adopt it. But now casting because. Um, most of the forecasting that's out there is is not using satellite imagery and and tracking in real time and and so we use this term now casting to to describe that you know gents i I probably could spend another two hours on the phone uh, because between the two of you there's so much I could learn. I really appreciate the extra um, the extra effort and time as we sort of turn to, towards home base here um, I'd love to know uh, a couple of uh, of tidbits of advice from each of you so from James. I'd love to know, is there anything that you as an entrepreneur going through this acquisition process, going through like the business uh, building process, you know, you mentioned that you didn't even think about really an acquisition in the, in the building side. What do you feel is, has been a core piece of advice that you would want to pass on to others who might be looking, listening to this because they would love to be acquired by a company like DMV someday? I would definitely say the, the idea of a critical path is a really big thing for me. So it's a kind of a it's it's pretty pretty passe because it it's it's a term that comes from the project management world, which um is is nowhere near as cool as the product world that we all live in. But um for me it's really important to to have the imagination firstly to see, okay, this is where I think it's going. This is where I think I want to get to. That that's a big step, right? Having that imagination and and that vision. But then going there in your imagination and then walking backwards and say, well, okay, in order for that to be true, what are the series of steps? And, and that's like the critical path, you know, we use that every day. So I'm always thinking, what's the thing that I need to be doing like yesterday in order to get there, you know, um, rather than the way I think we naturally go about it, which is what's the next thing I should do, um, which is inherently from where you are now. It's not about where you're going. And so um, that's the biggest thing I would say is hit the critical path. Like, what are you doing that you shouldn't be doing now or you should be doing later? And what are you not doing that you should be doing yesterday from the perspective of your goal? Go over to your goal and look back and then it, it becomes sort of, it becomes clearer sometimes, you know. And Dana, you've had the perspective from uh, National Renewable Energy Labs where you have counseled countless entrepreneurs and uh, techno- technology innovators um, and now at DNV, where you get to evaluate startups all the time, um, both those in developing and, and those are bringing technologies to bear. What do you think uh, is a sort of critical element that you find the good ones have and others like just need to be coached on it? Something that routinely came up for you as you evaluated companies building and bringing to market new technology that you would like to pass on as advice for budding entrepreneurs? I think the most important thing when when we're setting strategy kind of gets back to what James just said, right? It's it's understanding where you want to go 
And that's hard to define because you're standing where you're standing today, right? And you have the tools around you and you think you could you could solve that problem and then you you take a look from there. And the problem is you're you're optimizing toward a local maximum or a local minimum, depending on your perspective. The issue I think most often is if you ask someone what they need, they'll tell you what they need, but they're not telling you why they need it. They're not telling you what their job is and you're not listening to you know what those challenges are. You're instead saying, oh yeah, I can give you that deliverable. I can, I can give you that endpoint in an API, for example. Um, but I think the question ultimately comes back of what are we trying to accomplish? And if we know where we're going, then yeah, those little steps, like James said, can be back calculated, right? We can, we can look back from that destination and say, well, we will need to have accomplished this and that. And, and to some extent, that's, that's a lot of, you know, the experience at, uh, at CEDO, at, at DOE. This is very much uh, some of the, the conversations that you're having with startups, with researchers, understanding how to set milestones, uh, how to plot that roadmap to, to that, that goal as opposed to where you are today. Because I think in most cases, if you just take that one step at a time without the context of where you're trying to go, you'll end up solving a problem, but not the problem, if that makes sense. And the, the problem that we're trying to solve right now is how do we hit 30% solar on a global grid in 30 years? That seems impossible, right? And so we have to think differently. I'd like to know, before I ask the final question, I believe that readers are leaders. And, you know, James gave uh, The Alchemist as a great resource. I'd like to know one, one from each of you. It doesn't have to be a book, but where do you draw inspiration from? A, a, a resource or a source um, that you pass along to others? Could be a book, could be a blog, a podcast, uh, or, or something that just has, is, it has ingrained knowledge in you that you share as a resource to others. It's not a book. It's not a podcast per se, but it's, it's all of the, the, to some extent, there are these, there were these, uh, these meetings called All Things D that Walt Mossberg once hosted uh, with a bunch of uh, tech CEOs. That's kind of transitioned into a whole bunch of things, and I still kind of follow a lot of those uh, those folks at a website called The Verge. In fact, Harry Woods and I are both, I think, avid kind of readers of, of that site, and it's it's not focused on energy. They do touch on energy topics. They do touch on climate topics. But ultimately, it kind of comes back to to some of those conversations or those those uh, product announcements, right? From you know, from the likes of Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, right? Which which really comes back to I think Bill Gates had a, had a quote once where we overestimate change that will occur over the next year or two, and underestimate the change that will occur in the next five or ten. And I think that's where we are right now. I think five years ago, we were talking about 100% renewables wasn't even possible. And now most communities and a lot of governments have those plans in place. Um, and it's not because it wasn't possible then. It's just people weren't ready. They didn't know that it could be possible. We still have those conversations every day with utilities around the world trying to, trying to figure out Hey, if a three gigawatt plant goes down in the Middle East because there's a cloud that goes over, what happens to the grid? And that's the question that we're trying to solve for that, for that customer. Just to come back and say, how do I design this asset to accommodate for that need? 
And it's not just the kilowatt hours that are being delivered. It, it comes back to, you know, the grid that's enabling the world around us. Yeah, look, for me, the, the books that have been most impactful and that I use literally every day would be those more around ways of seeing the world and, and making decisions. So I, I would definitely say um, all of the Nicholas Taleb books, um, particularly yeah. there's one called Anti-Fragile. It's, it's, it's not the Black oh, Swan yeah. that everyone's heard of. It, it came after that. But, um, and it's, it's, it's really about the nature of the world and the sorts of behavior you get from different systems and how you can make yourself robust and, and even benefit from chaos, you know? So it's, it's really, really interesting, really deep thinking in there. That really helps me see the world in different ways that, that I didn't before I'd read it. And it, I'm an avid rereader. I've probably reread that book about five or six times, um, and it's never far away from my bedside. The, the other one in terms of decision-making is, is it, most people have heard of this, is, um, is Kahneman's book, um, Thinking Fast and Slow, Danny Kahneman, in terms of the, the behavioral economics or, or kind of behavioral psychology stuff. Understanding that, you know, whether you're hiring, whether you're facing a new situation or you've got to make a decision, if, if you're aware of all the, those natural biases that we all have, um, then you're going to be in a much stronger position to make the right call. If folks are so inclined and want to reach out, how do you guys like to be found? James? Yeah, you can get me on LinkedIn, James Luffman. Yeah, LinkedIn works. Uh, else, just uh, add dnv.com. Well, guys, uh, I'm going to end uh, along following the lines of how you have optimized your advice. You know, we're sitting at 2050 with having accomplished at least 30% penetration. Uh, I'd like to say 80% renewables, 30% solar. What did we get right to get there? What did we have to unlock? For me, I would say storage and flexibility and finding ways to uh, smooth out all those bumps, you know. Yeah, and, and from my side, I think uh, there's huge challenges still on the permitting side, interconnection, all of these kinds of uh, issues in terms of, you know, the nimbyism that exists uh, around the globe. I, too, grew up on a farm and uh, in the Midwest. James and I have that in common. We've been farming the sun for some time. But the flip side of that is that those farms are there for one reason, one reason only to support the families that live on them and to provide a, a life and a, you know, a living wage. And it's, it's one of these things, I think, where wind and solar change that dynamic quite a bit. There's a lot of discussion around agrivoltaics and things like that, but it becomes something that we have to get out of our own way. As we do remove those obstacles, get out of our own way and uh, unlock the power of storage and flexibility to get us to an 80 plus percent renewable grid, not only will we be following it here, but they'll be forecasting it at DNV and Soulcast. Dana, James, super, super grateful for the, uh, a, the excess of time that you've generously gifted us and as a, as a community. Um, thanks for letting us sort of sit at your feet and learn more about the innovation that's coming to market and the way that you guys are leading. It was really insightful for me to really be able to pull apart kind of how this acquisition happened and what it really does matter, why it matters to the industry. More, more specifically than just one entrepreneur's story, um, it's, a, it's an industry story. It's how we're evolving. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks very much. 
Well, my friends, if you, like I, have wondered what happens in the halls of great companies like DNV when they're looking to acquire up-and-coming great companies like Soulcast, now you know. I hope that you feel a little more knowledgeable, not only about the ways that M&A takes place, but how to think about it from both sides of the table and what we have to look forward to in the marvelous API-driven world of weather forecasting that is a world with renewables on demand, on the grid. Companies like DNV and Soulcast are on the cusp of greatness in helping our industry truly forecast this resource in a better way and to know how it's going to deliver renewable power to all. Thank you, Dana and James, for taking time to generously gift us with the knowledge we need to better understand how to run our own businesses and careers. If you, like me, truly appreciated that well of wisdom, I pray that you will take the time to go to LinkedIn and say hi to Dana Olson and James Luffman. Connect with them, leave them a message. Maybe like and comment on the post that we've made. Not only can all of the links you need be found right there in the description of the podcast player you are listening to, no doubt. But if you click on the one that takes you to the episode notes page, you'll find all the research that I did, the books they recommended, the social links, and more at mysuncast.com. The show notes page is a wealth of information, my friends. I hope that you will use it. What I also hope that you'll do is check out those sponsors who help every single week bring this content to you for free. All you have to do is pay your attention, divide your time for a while, and they take care of the rest. Thankful to SunGrow and all the others who have supported our show through the years to keep it free every single time. You can too if you go check them out, mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And that's also how you could find out ways that you could reach thousands of clean tech champions and solar warriors just like they do. Remember, you are what you listen to. I look forward to our next encounter. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.